This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Toronto Raptors Director of Wellness and Development, Alex Urbach. He discusses the key characteristics to mental performance and well-being, how individuals can challenge environments and leadership to fit their needs, as well as common denominators he's seen in elite performers. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So Alex, really appreciate you uh, jumping on with me. How are things your end? Are you all good? I'm doing very well, thank you. I have nothing to complain about. Excited about the uh, birth of my baby daughter, so life life's pretty good. Good, and I will say you don't look too tired, which is a very uh, you've done very well there. I'm sure you're you're masking it well, but in terms <laughs> of looking at you're doing okay at the minute, which is which is good to see. Well, thank you. If you would have caught me a couple of days ago, you might not have said the same thing. <laughs> Perfect. So, um, yeah, really exciting conversation here. I've seen a lot of your work kind of on social media in terms of um, tweets and stuff you've put out there. A lot of stuff that's, I guess, resonated with me personally and also challenged a little bit of my workings or my beliefs and stuff. So for people that maybe haven't come across you on social media, I guess first you want to give yourself a little plug of where they can find you, but then also go into... I guess, what your role is and, and what that means from a practical perspective. Sure. So on Twitter, you can find me at Alex Auerbach, PhD, LinkedIn, same thing, uh, although I don't write as much on LinkedIn yet. Um, so my, my role is really, I'm the sports psychologist for the NBA's Toronto Raptors. I oversee all of our mental health, mental performance, as well as our off-court player development. So that's things like character development, leadership development, uh, and life skills development. Um, and my background is as a counseling psychologist. I did my PhD in counseling psychology and kind of like a double major, basically, in sport and performance psychology. Um, and I worked the college level before I came here and was actually a former Division One football coach as well. So I had my hand in several different roles in athletics and really found, you know, my kind of niche, if you will, in this intersection of health and high performance and kind of an emerging I don't know how to describe it, like space between kind of niche, right? So understanding the interactions between, you know, player and team, team and coach, coach and organization, team and organization, how the, you know, the dynamic interplay of sport that translates into any organization, figuring out, you know, like how do these things work together? How can they help or hurt one another? Um, you know, so and how do we promote kind of health and high performance from the highest level? So that's, you know, the gist of, of my work. Um, I try to write things that do do challenge some of the status quo. You know, I don't want to over-index too much on pop psychology and try to keep things grounded in the data and, and be, you know, a rigorous scientist um, with a my own personal bend and critical thinking. Yeah, no, one of the bits, I guess, is interesting for me and that pop psychology bit that you mentioned was around the uh, the reading of facial expressions and stuff or body language and how that's very pop culture. So yeah, for anyone that hasn't seen that, I definitely recommend it to go and have a look because it's quite interesting. I guess from the from the top, you obviously mentioned kind of two strands of having that counsel or counseling um hub initially and then obviously the sports side alongside it. So if we look at it from a a counseling point of view first, how does that differ um I guess from a practitioner level to what 
is then necessary for high performance athletes and what strands are the same and carry across? Yeah, great question. So I guess to back up and sort of give the big picture, the way I view sort of mental health and mental performance is, is one big continuum from illness to flourishing or high performance, kind of whatever you want to call call it. And so, you know, counseling and mental health is really about that one side of the continuum, right? Helping uh, pull people out of psychological distress and into a general place of well-being and sort of um, like, okay, right? Contentment. And then the mental performance is really about how do we get from there to consistent success, consistent peak performance. Um, and in my view, you know, everyone is a performer, right? We all have something uh, where we have a goal, we care about the outcome, and the outcome is dependent on how we do. That's that's sort of my definition of performance. So that can be, you know, parenting, playing a sport, working. Uh, but not everyone is, you know, cares about sort of reaching peak performance in every domain. And so I'm just lucky to work with some elite athletes who are really invested in that. And so, you know, sort of at the the core of that, like the middle of that, and, and sort of how I view it as a pivot point, maybe is this idea of wellness. And I, I believe there are kind of seven core characteristics that live at that wellness intersection that facilitate both well-being and high performance can help us sort of stave off psychological distress and maintain our excellence. Uh, and so I try to work a lot in, in that space. Uh, you know, teaching those core skills, I think, is really important. But the counseling training allows me to work you know, really deeply with things like anxiety or depression or relationship issues, right? Things that, you know, even the best athletes in the world are experiencing. And then, you know, the second branch of my training allows me to really do things that optimize the human experience. Are you able to discuss those seven strands just so we can get an idea? I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here. No, not, not at all. Yes, I, I'm happy to discuss them. I just try not to be too long-winded. <laughs> so, yeah, so I guess the seven kind of in a nutshell... For me, the first is self-awareness. So, you know, understanding who we are, what motivates us, what our needs are, um, you know, knowing what sort of like pushes us in particular directions, ranging from you know, how does sleep impact our cognitive functioning to how do I impact other people? Uh, you know, humans have obviously evolved this incredible capacity to regulate one another's experience. And so having an awareness of how you impact others and how others impact you, I think is really important. And so that's dimension one. Dimension two is stress management. I, I kind of tend to think more of stress optimization, but it's this idea that like stress on its own is actually not harmful as long as you leverage some recovery practices. It's consistent stress with no recovery that ends up being problematic. And so when I think of stress management or stress optimization, I'm really thinking about how do we use the stress we feel effectively and how do we do some recovery, which is a perfect lend into the third, which is recovery, right? So sleep, active recovery, non-sleep, deep rest, right? These different things that we could do to restore our energy, restore our focus um, is really important for both, you know, making sure we feel well and also making sure we perform well. The fourth dimension is resilience. So how do we respond to the day-to-day -day adversity as well as the big adversities we face in our life? Um, what resources can we draw upon to help us cope with those difficulties? Who in our network um, can help us manage those difficulties, I think is really important. The fifth dimension is social support. And that, so that's, for me, both team support and broader social network. And what I mean by that is like in our performance domains, we often work as part of a team, right? So even myself, although I'm not a player, obviously, I have a team. I have a team I manage. I have a team I'm part of in the executive team. 
and how we all function and interact does impact my performance as well as how I feel about going to work. And then I have a larger social network that sort of um, gives me a boost in other areas of my life, right? Allows me to explore my identity outside of work, offers support or different perspectives, gives me a place to recover and recharge. Um, and so I, I think that's a critical dimension. The sixth is mental skills. So, you know, if I'm thinking solely about the mental performance side of my world, it's these skills that might have ordinarily sort of lived there that actually turn out to be really helpful in our day-to-day -day lives. So things like managing our self-talk or mindfulness meditation or practicing imagery um, or setting goals, you know, these things actually do help us feel better too, not just perform really well, but also feel better in our life to, you know, create a sense of mastery, to create a sense of internal control, these things that are really important. And then the final dimension for me is play. Um, and I've written a little bit about this on Twitter as well. It's just the idea that like, you know, basically once we get to high school, at least in North America, you start to slowly suck the life out of people, basically. <laughs> like, you know, it becomes really focused on achievement and outcomes and these other things that are not not so important in the grand scheme, but feel really important in the moment. And we kind of, the, the thing we sacrifice is recess, right? We sacrifice time to just go have fun. We turn sports into something where now it's about getting a scholarship to college versus playing for the love of the game. And I think, you know, to maintain both your health and high performance over the long term, you have to have a place you can play, right? Something that you are motivated to do, something that's self-guided, self-directed, creates a sense of mastery, allows you to experiment and explore and try new things in a low consequence environment and is intrinsically motivating and meaningful for you. Um, so some people think of those as hobbies, might be a hobby, it might be playing with your kid, it might be playing a musical instrument, there's no like right answer. But I, I do believe that's a core critical part of living at that center of well-being. So those are the seven. Perfect. There's probably three that I want to pick up on, but let's start with the last one there. So around that play, why do you think that we don't play as much emphasis on that as potentially we should? Because I think that you're right in terms of as you get older, people say, well, no, now it's time to grow up. You need to stop doing this. Where actually that might be your escapism for a period. You might go for an hour and that's your way to decompress or de-wind. People probably don't place as much value on that as they maybe should. Why do you think that is? I think, uh, I mean, like the really deep big picture answer is capitalism probably, <laughs> you know, like, right? We're a society that's highly oriented toward productivity, toward achievement, toward doing as much as humanly possible. And play is kind of antithetical to that, right? Like it's a time where you're not necessarily producing anything. At least you don't need to. You could, whether, you know, if you're painting, you might produce a painting, but you're just doing that for the sake of the activity itself. You're not doing it because you're painting and you're trying to be the next Picasso and that's how you want to make a living, right? And so if that's what you were doing, you wouldn't be playing, you'd be working. And so I think, you know, we've kind of like sucked the joy out of that. But then I think there's all these other sort of like, lower level than capitalism kind of concepts that I think come, come into play. So one is our value system, right? And it ties into capitalism, but it's just the idea that like, we don't tend to value as a society, at least in Western culture, we don't tend to value things that don't have a really clear outcome. And we don't tend to value things that don't seem to move us forward materially. Um, so that's why I think sleep also gets kind of like shoved by the wayside, right? There's not a clear outcome of sleep other than like what we know the good things happen in your brain are, but people can't see that, they can't feel that or touch that. And so it seems sort of nebulous and not important. And I think play is 
kind of similar. Um, and then I think, you know, as society has gotten, I think, progressively more like competitive um, and, and people have come to value, you know, certain types of work or roles more than others. Um, I think play has been sort of the thing that's been squeezed out, right? People have prioritized, again, achievement and valued achievement, whether that's producing something or not. They just valued that reaching a higher goal over, you know, doing something that's intrinsically motivating. Um, and so, again, the things that go by the wayside are the things you can't necessarily, like, see the real benefit of, but you feel it. Um, and because that, it, it just doesn't feel quite as real, which is unfortunate. And from a, a leadership perspective, um, have you seen any particularly good ways people have encouraged that? So if you're a leader of a particular group, like maybe I'm not saying obviously an NBA team, but it might be an NBA team. It might be actually we're going to create space every Thursday. Here's a building, go and fill your boots or whatever you want. Like, have you seen any particularly good ways where people engage with that principle? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously sports is like a natural ground to experiment with some of this. But, you know, I think there have been things like, you know, making up games, basically, or allowing free time at practice for players to kind of do what they want to do to challenge each other um, to play one on one, because that's what they want to do, right, versus walking them through the system or the playbook or trying to get one more rep in, like, allowing that to unfold. And you see it a lot in, in your world, in the soccer world, right, in small sided games and kind of like games that happen pick up right down the road and basketball very much down like a pickup culture too. And that, so that kind of play I think is is great. And I think leaders who sort of make time for that, I think do, do really well. Um, I think from like a corporate perspective, you know, finding opportunities to sort of engage people in novelty without evaluation is a great way to do it. So if you think about, you know, like team building and sort of a concrete way, like whether that's, um, you know, doing like a retreat and allowing people to kind of talk about their goals outside of work or, you know, encouraging like a painting hour or a pottery class. Like there's a lot of creative stuff you can do that just gets people out of this, like, oh my goodness, my boss is looking over my shoulder. I got to get something done mode and into like, man, we're just doing this and this is like, okay, right? This is accepted. This is part of what we're doing today. And they clearly value that I do something other than work. So. No, that's, that's really interesting. I think that leads a lot of food for thought in terms of people that are in those leadership positions. How do you find time for your, your staff to do that? I guess this links nicely into the one of the other principles things around the stress management piece. So what type of strategies can people put in place to deal with uh, stress? And I guess what are the key factors that cause someone to have high stress levels? Um, is there anything that kind of is a common cause, regardless if it's personal or if it's work or, you know, whatever it might be? Is there anything that's a key contributor? And then what are some strategies to maybe help people in that space? Yeah, so I'll answer the key characteristics first and then I'll double back. So I guess to me, the, the key characteristics or the key things that sort of cause stress are importance, right? So the outcome matters. And this is something that you care about. Uh, the second is uncertainty. So there's just a lot of ambiguity and you're not clear how you're going to deliver what it is you need to deliver or how to get done what you need to get done. And then the third, which is the one I think most people are familiar with, is volume, right? We just have too much stuff going on and, and not enough hours in the day to your last comment to do it. Um, and so, you know, the way I, I think about stress generally in terms of stress management is, 
you know, stress and cortisol, like cortisol is just a, a metabolic regulator of your energy. It's not a stress hormone. It's just your body getting you ready to do something effortful. That is all that stress is. It is just your body mobilizing resources for you to do something effortful. Maybe it's achieve that important outcome or resolve some uncertainty or take on some of the volume, right? But we've sort of like created this narrative that all stress is bad. And so I think that's one part of the problem, right? That's one part of the, the stress management equation that I think we've actually gotten wrong. We've sort of turned stress into the bad guy. And the reality is, is like with no stress, you would die, right? We all need some level of energy and activation to do the things that we need to do. And so again, in, in and of itself, stress is actually not inherently harmful or even something that needs to be managed. But, you know, if you let any of these three dimensions run rampant or you don't do any recovery, that's when it gets a bit overtaxing, right? So if you think about it from an energy perspective, your body mobilizes, you do the hard thing, and then you don't recover and you do the same thing again, right? You mobilize, you do a hard thing. Well, each time, right, you have less and less energy to draw from. It'd be like going to the gym and doing bench press every single day. Like you can do it five, 10, maybe even 15 days in a row. But eventually you're going to tear a pack, right? Because you didn't do any recovery. And the same thing is sort of true with like the burnout phenomenon and some of these other things. Eventually, you're just not going to be able to mobilize those resources because you haven't replenished the resources. And so I think it's really important that people recognize recovery is not time away from something you need to do. Recovery is an investment in your future performance. And if you can start to frame recovery in that way, then the biggest thing you can do to manage your stress is just make time to replenish those resources, right? Eat well, sleep well, exercise, you know, hydrate, spend time with loved ones, journal. There's a lot of things you could do that activate that recovery, walk in nature, yoga, meditate, like the list goes on and on, honestly. Like if anything that sort of restores you works well, but you have to make time to do it. Otherwise, the stress gets to the point where we feel like we need to manage it, which is when it's sort of already too far gone, right? We haven't done the things that we need to do to keep stress functioning for us. And of course, there are, you know, outlier events, extreme acute stressors that don't fit into this category. But by and large, like the day-to-day -day stress we're talking about, this is, is sort of the way to do it. And so, you know, I just named for you a number of strategies I think people can leverage to help better manage their stress. And in terms of high, I guess, the high volume piece, which is probably something that can resonate with a lot of people where you feel overwhelmed or overworked, how can you go around having, I guess, that recovery, but understanding the, the level of sustainability of that? So if I look at it as you've got a deadline, you've got a deadline coming up on Friday, it's unavoidable that I might be doing 18 hour days to get this work in. Is there anything I could do the week before that deadline to give me optimization, knowing that I'm going to go through a heavy period, but at the back end of it, actually, I can then have more recovery there? Or is it that you still have to find time in and around that 18 hours to fulfill those bits that you just said? Yeah, I mean, you can certainly do things like, you know, prep for that long week, right? Like preparation and adequate practice going into that week will help make it a little bit more predictable. Um, you know, and I would encourage prioritizing the sleep in the six hours you have left in your day, right? Uh, so I think it would be important to just make time for recovery after that sprint, right? It, you, you can get through a one-week period 
of pushing really hard. It might not be pleasant, but you can do it as long as there's recovery on the back end. It's doing that repeatedly that that causes a bit of a problem. But the other thing I would sort of like encourage or push people on, and this is something that comes up a lot in the work I've done in the corporate space, is this notion that everything is important. And like the reality is that's just not true, right? But things, everything feels important for whatever reason, right? Our boss tells us this meeting is critical. Every deliverable feels like it's the end of the world. But in a lot of regards, most of the stuff we do at work is kind of like the work we did in college, right? Like, I don't know about you, not a single person has ever asked me about a grade I got on a test in college. And similarly, I can't think of a time that anyone's really been like, hey, could you tell me about the, you know, deeply the outcome of that project that you did five years ago? right? Like people sort of keep moving forward. And so I think it's important to keep perspective on that and to really recalibrate around what is it that is really important here and why are you doing what you are doing? And if you can find things to let go in that 18 hour day, so it becomes a 17 or 16 hour day by recognizing like this might not be the most important thing. I think that's also an easy strategy that you can incorporate. And it's really about figuring out kind of where are the opportunities to do good work without doing great work, right? You want to do good enough without worrying about everything being, you know, taking a 90 to a 95 or a 95 to a 100. Like, don't let perfect be the enemy good enough kind of thing. Be the enemy of good enough, excuse me. And then I think, you know, in these periods, like you have an opportunity to practice some skills, right? So you've got the chance to Think about this as an opportunity to learn something about yourself, to challenge yourself, to leverage your strength, whatever it might be. And, and working through that appraisal, right, turning the stress into a challenge is one good way to sort of keep your energy up and engaged during this more intense period. And then again, you can give yourself the leeway to recover on the back end. But don't convince yourself that when you end this 18-hour you know, daily sprint for a week that you're going to be able to do that repeatedly at a high level. We we know scientifically that that is not true, right? Like we know that when you start cutting sleep off, cognitive de performance declines, your emotional regulation abilities decline, your reaction time declines, like a lot of stuff gets worse. So it's only a matter of time before you sort of like proverbially fall off that cliff, right? And so you've got to make the time for recovery. But like anything, I believe you can do hard things for a good bit of time before you really need to wind it down. Perfect. And then coming into the last question, I think this is a little bit um, more relevant to sport in certain capacities. I'm not going to name a team because I don't think that would be fair for you. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll name an English football team. That might be a little bit easier. But what, <laughs> you, what you do tend to find is that some environments aren't conducive to high performance of their players and or staff. Mm -hmm. um, I think in terms of you know the culture that's created within teams, can at times be not helpful and basically creates an atmosphere where one, everyone's fearful for their jobs or two, no one overly enjoys being there for a variety of reasons. It could be a particular individual. It could be the way they set up. How do you go around supporting individuals in that space where actually they're going into a particular area of their life that, let's be honest, work is quite a big port proportion of where you are during the day that they know is almost a battleground and is going to be that every single day. How do you support someone with that in that space? That's a wonderful question. And and I don't even think I need to name names because that that's very common, right? That's a common experience in 
in elite athletics for several reasons, right? Pressure, there's a lot of money involved. Uh, people want immediate outcomes and gratification, you know, several systemic issues that um, create that. But I guess there's two dimensions for me when I'm thinking about how can we, we solve this problem. So the first is, you know, tapping into why you got into the work that you got into in the first first place and keeping that top of mind, right? So most people who enter sport as a coach or as a support staff member, there was a genuine interest and passion for helping athletes get better at the time. That's sort of like the common thread, right? And so if you can tap into that, remind yourself why you're here, why you're doing what you're doing, step out of some of the kind of political gamesmanship that's inevitable in these environments you're describing where people are just trying to survive and sort of advance their own agendas or needs. Um, I think keeping your why top of mind is is critical um, and you can use it to connect with other people in the same space, right? So if you're thinking about like, gosh, I got in this because I really care about the athletes, you know, you can sort of like bring that up in conversation. You can share that with other people. You give other people a chance to resonate with something that's sort of a shared experience in the space, regardless of all the bigger stuff going on. The second one is one I've, I've gotten into a lot more recently, um, and I don't have it perfectly mapped out of my mind, but I'm going to take a stab at it if that's okay. Um, and it's the idea of niche construction, and the concept comes from like evolutionary biology and cultural evolution. And it's the idea that like organisms in their environment actually can reciprocally influence and change their environment to make it work for them without it having to be these like really sweeping changes. So some good examples are like ants that build hills, right? Or bees who build hives. They've come up with creative ways to allow themselves to do what they do in whatever environment it is that they're in by simply constructing something new. And I think people do that. We have good data that people do that from the time they're born, right? So you come out and you cry and you see if your parents respond to you well or if they don't respond to you well. And if they respond warmly and kindly and positively enough times, you learn that crying will get you at least one of your needs met. And if they don't, then you might learn over time not to cry and that'll create some different dynamics for you, right? But that's a very like elementary example of the human experience. But as we get older, you know, we've, especially in sport recently, you know, really emphasize like culture and environment. And I think for good reasons, right? Like the environment does play a huge part in how we feel and perform. But I am starting to worry that we've over-indexed on culture and environment as like this sort of like end-all, be-all, nebulous thing we really have to get right. And we might be minimizing the potential for people to figure out how to make the environment work for them. And I want to be clear that like, this is not about cruel optimism, you know, this idea that you can like, you can fix the world by yourself and, you know, global warming can all get solved by you recycling. That's, that's not what this is about, but it is to say, you know, you probably have more influence than you think were people. And so you too can change how you respond to people when they do a certain thing. And you can essentially like reward or punish behavior, right? Based on how you respond, you can choose to zag when everyone's zigging. You can, you know, take the extra time to sleep, right? And not, you know, drag yourself in. Someone can ask you to come in at seven and you can say, gosh, we got in at 4 a.m. last night. Do you think we could push that to nine? Like there are things that you can do to sort of push a little bit the environment in the direction that you need it to go. And I think in sport, unfortunately, 
people just sort of like go along to get along. And so they don't really ever shape their environment for all these fear-based fear reasons we've touched on. But I think, you know, this idea of you can kind of construct your own environment or shape your environment to work for you, I think has tremendous potential to help people. Um, so, yeah, I think a really interesting concept around that, I guess my one challenge would be how do you cope with a leader who can be inconsistent? Because if you can imagine over an NBA season, for example, you might act in a particular way or push back in a particular way on the Wednesday after winning or Tuesday night, wherever you have. And then the, a similar scenario props up on the Saturday but you've lost Friday and all of a sudden the feedback you get is very, very different. So how do you deal with it in terms of the inconsistency of maybe the leadership individual and how that can affect the, the person? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, and again, like this is where some of the power dynamics in sport and, you know, how power makes us less sensitive to other people kind of kind of plays a part. But I think there are a couple of things, right? So one is like anything, you got to pick your battles, right? You're, you're not going to win them all. And I think, again, like with culture change or environment change, people tend to think about kind of global reform, right? Like we need to change the values and rebuild the culture from the ground up. And like, that might be true, but it might also just be that you need to change one thing right now. And so, you know, to simplify it, it's like, keep the main thing, the main thing, right? It doesn't mean it's going to happen hundred percent of the time. It might happen once and then it might be three months and it happens again. And then it happens again. And that's progress, right? And so not to get too bogged down, right, as a support staff member or a member of any organization in the inevitable highs and lows of a sports season. Like you take an NBA season, it's got 82 games, you're probably going to lose some, right? And, and so to react to each of those as though it's the end-all be-all, again, like, I don't think anyone's really looking back to the games that you played in the early season, if you're in the playoffs, if you're not in the playoffs, maybe it's a little different, but even then they're probably still looking at the end of your year, right? People are looking at growth over time and how does it progress? And so, you know, all that's to say, like, keep perspective. You don't have to fight every battle, but don't, you know, be afraid to stand your ground a little bit if you think it's realistic, particularly from a recovery perspective, right? So I think people are starting to tune in a little bit more to the importance of recovery. People are not machines. And so, you know, I think it's about finding the language to be able to have these conversations effectively, being able to talk about recovery as an investment, being able to talk about maintaining performance over the long term versus trying to grind it out right now, and really sort of like tapping into the potential of long-term growth over short-term comfort kind of thing. And, and I think if you can do that, you can be successful. And again, it's not going to happen every time, but that's not the goal, really. The goal is to have some small wins, to try to make these subtle changes, and to ultimately shape it into what you need it to be. Perfect. So I think moving on now, I guess, from, from more of a, a practical perspective, obviously, as you mentioned earlier, you work, work with athletes, and that will come with a unique set of challenges as, as well as skills and stuff. So I guess my first two questions are this. How do you remove the the person from the athlete? Because I can imagine that it must be very difficult if you're going and working with an individual who's got, you know, millions of screaming fans at him over, you know, winning the NBA championship a few years ago or, you know, he's won the autographs anywhere. Sometimes that individual actually needs, you know, a level of, no, I'm just Kawhi or I'm just... 
LeBron or I'm just Russell rather than being this all a dear individual. And then two, how do you get them to reflect on where they are at this moment in time um, as an athlete within the organisation? Because again, your star superstar player on a multi-million pound contract is in a very different mental state and mental um, position or physical position compared to the, you know, 11th, 12th man off the bench who, if they make a wrong move or aren't getting a lot of minutes, could potentially find themselves uh, cut with someone else coming in on a 10-day contract. So how, how do you manage those two things? Yeah, so for the first one, I guess I'd sort of invert it, right? I, I don't separate the person from performer. I see them as kind of inextricably linked. And so I start with the person first, right? I start with this idea that like, fundamentally the person sitting across from me in a room or standing next to me in a hallway as we're talking has the same needs that I do or you do, right? We all have a need to be in relationship with other people. We all have a need to feel some sense of autonomy and mastery and connectedness. We have often needs for achievement. We have basic needs, right? And so, you know, maybe being an athlete affords you some different opportunities to meet those needs in different ways. But by and large, like the needs don't really change, even down to like the need to be liked or cared about deeply, right? Like, and those things actually can get obscured sometimes by being famous, right? Like it can be easy to confuse those things. So I, I start with that as, as sort of my foundational perspective. Um, because I think tapping into that first is really important for building an authentic, genuine relationship and investing in this person beyond what happens on the court. Um, and so I, I think, you know, it, it sort of lends itself to that second part, right? Which is kind of like I do with any support staff member too, you know, the same things that are challenging for any of us working in high performance sport challenge the athletes in, in different ways, but similar concept, right? So how do I um, stay grounded to why I'm playing basketball in the first place or playing soccer in the first place? How can I uh, focus on improving? Where did I start and where am I now? And what do I want to achieve during my career? Um, what's my role on the team? How am I building relationships? What's my leadership look like? You know, these are all questions that we can sort of explore that are a little bit more person-centered. And I think by making them person-centered, you can get a little bit more into that kind of reflective space um, and less sort of performance focus. And obviously people come, you know, wanting to address a specific performance thing, like I struggle to, you know, make penalty kicks or it's challenging for me when I walk up to the plate and that's all, all fine and good, right? We can address that, but it's important to know kind of who's sitting across from you as well. Yeah, so I guess, one question for me about, about that, as, as you're just talking there, is how do you manage that in a group dynamic? And do you think that there's, uh, I guess, optimal personalities that work together? Um, I, I, I kind of listen to a lot of different podcasts, a lot of different interviews, and you get some that it seems like the environment is very much, um, you know, we, we talk holistically or we care about the entire person. I'll use San Antonio as an example. San Antonio Spurs, you talk about Tim Duncan, the way he used to lead. He wasn't a yeller. That wasn't his style. But he had, you know, Tony Parker, Ginobili in and around it. And they seemed to captivate an idea of we, we want to know more about the person. It's more about little touches or, you know, contact in different ways. Now, if you had a group of individuals that needed yelling to perform, <laughs> 
that would probably have gone a very different way. Equally, you look at kind of the New England Patriots, another model of high success, that seems far more brutal and cutthroat. It's not as much around the individual. It's like, no, do your job and then you'll be fine here. So do you think uh, there's like optimal dynamics of working or personality types that can or should work together to allow, you know, yeah, optimal performance, I guess? Yeah, so it's an interesting question, and, and I think my thinking on this has evolved over the last several years, but I'm actually moving away from this idea that there's an optimal personality type, um, because I think, like, in general, people can actually learn to work together. I mean, obviously, there are really extremes where that doesn't happen, but um, I think people can learn to, learn to work together, assuming they have a complementary skill set. And so I think what ends up happening is personality on the best teams ends up sort of being subsumed by ability to get the job done. And people figure out how to make it work because the team is skilled enough to compete at whatever it is that they're, they're competing at, even in, in a corporate setting, let's say. Um, so in my world, certainly, like, obviously, you know, the NBA has really done a great job of promoting kind of like healthy individualism, which makes it fun. Um, and I think that there's uh, good room for that honestly. And so I, I focus less on personality when I'm thinking about how we compose the team um, beyond kind of like extreme outliers, right? I think in those instances, obviously, if someone, you know, might actively detract from the team dynamic or might, you know, undermine their teammates or be prone to some behavior that we wouldn't support, then I think, of course, you have to figure out whether or not that's really a good thing to add. But assuming everyone's personality is sort of in like a healthy, normal range, I've moved less toward that, like I said, and more toward, like, let's find the optimal combination of skills and then learn to work together interpersonally. And how does that get challenged? Obviously, you mentioned there regarding, regarding outliers. If you look at, like, Kobe Bryant as an example, or, or Michael Jordan, you, you know, I think most of us have watched that Last Dance documentary, and I'd imagine at times he's probably not the nicest person to be around. But ultimately, that ultimate goal, which they all wanted, probably allowed him to um get away with some stuff that an average player might not be able to is it important in that context i guess to have a skill base that can complement that individual but also a personality that can cope with that type of individual because again the, the hostile nature of the way that they act i'd imagine for certain players would not you're just not going to get the best out of them because of the way that they're receiving the feedback etc yeah it's a super interesting question and example right um I mean, I think, yes, obviously there's, you know, some degree of skill you have to have to sort of back up the way that you're doing things. You know, you can't be Michael Jordan and have the skill of me out there trying to, you know, sort of run people into the ground. But if you're as elite as he is and was, then, you know, maybe you can get away with pushing a little bit harder. But I, I think there's also, you know, maybe overlooked in the documentary exactly how clear he was in communicating what his expectations were. And, and I think there's something to be said less for the personality type and more for the way he actually led that sort of allowed him to push harder. Like there was no mystery about what he wanted to accomplish. And so then it became up to everybody else to sort of meet him where he needed them to meet him for them to win championships. And it was less about, in my view, like do these personalities get along? And more about, like, do you, as the person who is following this elite player, want to get on board with this or not? Because the train is not stopping. You know, Michael Jordan's train is is plugging full steam ahead. And, 
you know, I, I think we look at like him getting away with things or people talk about him not being a great teammate. Um, I think he might have been a hard guy to work with, but I don't know that that makes him a bad team. And I don't think that having high expectations necessarily means, um, you know, that it's your your job to make everyone else feel comfortable, right? Especially not in these really elite settings. So I don't know. I'm less I'm less convinced that it was important for you know his other teammates to feel or behave a very specific way to work with him because of how he handled things. But it's a really interesting question. I don't have the answer. I'm just sort of thinking out loud. No, I think it's interesting you said the communication piece as well. It's a, there's one particular altercation with him and Steve Kerr where he mentions Phil Jackson managing the situation like that isn't going to prepare them for when they play the Pistons away in that hostile environment. So I wonder if you, you caught on to something regarding the communication bit, which is like, yeah, I am being hostile or I am being demanding because this is what that end environment actually needs from us and needs from you. And I need to know whether I can trust you. And obviously it got back later on that, you know, with the three pointer and stuff, but he ultimately needs to know which people are going to go to battle with me here and which people am I not going to pass the ball to? Or am I not going to be able to trust in that particular hostile environment? Cause that's, you know, our end goal, that's where we're going to need to get through in order to get to NBA championships, etc. Sure. Yeah, and I mean, look, I'm sure there are other ways to do it. Like, I think he's doing it in the way that he best knows how, you know, to sort of prepare his teammates. And obviously, Steve Kerr's gone on to have an incredible career as a coach, kind of doing it differently, right? Like, having a lot of fun. And, you know, I think they're obviously a highly competitive group of athletes, but he's built a, you know, culture on the idea of joy, basically. Um, and so I, I think you can, there are multiple ways to get to that point. Um, and I agree with you. I think a lot of it is just, you know, making sure that the people he's surrounding himself with are prepared to deliver when he needs them to deliver. And and I think in some ways, you know, it's kind of like maybe a selfless part of him that goes unrecognized, like realizing he actually needs other people to succeed. And this is sort of the way that he best knows how to do it. And so, you know, we can call it like a personality type or whatever, but ultimately I think like this is just a highly competitive person trying to motivate in the ways he best knows how. And it worked for some people and didn't work for others. And like I said, at the extremes, that's that's going to happen. Um, but when you've got the talent level like that, you, know, you can get away with that. And where do you see this moving to in, in the future? Because I look at all the other elements of an athlete um, and you look at, you know, physical, we're, we're progressing with in terms of physical care, tech, tech side has obviously been around with the X's and O's for ages. Where do you see, I guess, the, the psychological road going? And do you see that there's any pillars that we're able to put in place with, you know, with younger participants that allow them to, I guess, one, be more holistic in their approach to sports. I think that's important. But two, also provide them with strategies that if they do make it to that top end, they're better prepared mentally to go through the rigors of, of whatever that looks like. Love, love these questions. So I'll go in order. So I think, you know, the future is probably somewhere around understanding the interaction uh, and the space between individual team and organization. So some people would call that the environment. I think it's like environment plus culture plus this kind of like synergistic interaction effect, right? But like, we're hopefully going to get away from this idea that mental health or mental performance 
you know, solely lives within an individual, right? Like the circumstances and context that we operate in have a really big impact and influence over how we think, feel, and behave. And so I think in the future, you know, the best teams are going to appreciate that. And then they're going to work to create a culture that optimizes those things, right? So whether that's, you know, clear communication, setting good expectations, um, identifying clear values, you know, prioritizing rest and recovery. There are a lot of like environmental level interventions you can do that facilitate individual people thinking, feeling, behaving better. Uh, but right now, you know, there's still a little bit of that idea that like this is just your responsibility and you got to kind of make it work however you show up to work. Like work is its own thing, the environment's its own thing, and it's your job to fit in. And I think the future is figuring out how we make the environment work for performers and the teams that get to that point first, I think will have a competitive advantage. In terms of, you know, youth sport and, and what can people do? I mean, I know we talked earlier about the kind of pillars of wellness. Like that's, that's where I'd start, right? That, that is sort of the pivot point between high performance and overall well-being that I think people would do well to master those skills. Um, and I think, you know, you see it obviously a lot in youth sport now, like some hyper specialization training all the time. So even thinking about things like, how do we infuse rest and recovery into kids' sports? How do we give them breaks between seasons? I think would be helpful. But then, you know, education on the basic things too, right? Sleep, hydration, nutrition, all the things that we need to sort of be our healthiest, highest performing selves that don't often take place really until athletes get to college, right? Uh, at least in the States, you know, maybe here or there, you'll have an athletic trainer in high school who will educate on some of these things. But by and large, the resources to support that don't really um, exist until that college level. But that doesn't mean we couldn't educate, we couldn't help coaches infuse those practices into what they do, you know, practicing things like mental skills um, during a practice period versus asking, you know, athletes to do it on their own. These little interventions like that, I think, could go a long way to making youth sport better and preparing them for the future of high performance sport. Yeah, I think the idea of almost enabling the coaches to be in a really good spot with that is an interesting one. I know on some coaching courses I've done over here, they've done a little bit of groundwork on that. But I think that, you know, the more those people, because you're not going to be able to get funding to get it entirely down the pathway. But if you can get those people at those base levels of the grassroots who are able to support it and understand it to a degree, and hopefully that that will allow that to be a pillar moving forward. So I'm conscious we're at the time we kind of allotted for this. So la last question for me, which is who's the most um, thought provoking or impressive individual you've worked with in this space and why? Yeah, uh, man, great question. I mean, because my work is confidential, I can't really give you names names, but I can say, um, I've been really fortunate to be around some of the best athletes in the world now at, at their sport. And I think what's really cool about this experience is how idiosyncratic excellence is at this level. So there are some sort of shared traits that the great ones have, right? They work hard, they take good care of their bodies, those sorts of things. But then the way that they approach the game or the way they work through their craft is really kind of unique. Um, and it's unique to them. It's motivating to them. They found like their core, right? Like what helps them stay engaged and stay uh, working hard every day. And so I think that's been really impactful for me and been a really, you know, cool learning experience to have. Um, 
obviously when you come up trained as a psychologist, you try to put together this theory of how people, you know, do what they do and explain sort of like human greatness, right? <laughs> like that's that's some of what my role looks like. And and I think um it's really quite neat to know that part of explaining human greatness is like you just have to let people be who they are on their own and and sort of create the conditions and obviously you want to promote some core behaviors but like ultimately you want that individual self-expression of excellence um is really pretty cool no perfect as i said i'm always interested to hear the why on that but i think that's a, a fantastic reason why and allowing people to be unique within your environments um crucial so yeah listen alex a fascinating conversation um and yeah hopefully we can do it again soon absolutely thanks so much for having me Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.